Welcome to this Federalist Society Faculty Book Podcast, featuring Professor John Inaz's new book, Liberty's Refuge, The Forgotten Freedom of Assembly. Thank you for tuning in. During the past decade, courts have struggled to reconcile anti-discrimination statutes with claims by private organizations to First Amendment protection for decisions regarding their missions and membership. For example, can the Boy Scouts of America expel a gay scoutmaster, as in Boy Scouts of America versus Dale? And can a state law school deny official recognition to a religious club that requires members to affirm certain beliefs regarding homosexuality, as in Christian Legal Society versus Martinez? In resolving these questions, courts have frequently invoked the freedom of expressive association, a phrase that appears nowhere in the text of the First Amendment, but has been a part of modern judicial doctrine. In Liberty's Refuge, Professor Inazu argues that this expressive association mode of analysis is at least in part responsible for what he argues is inadequate protection for associational autonomy, and that a return to the more textually and historically grounded right of the people to peaceably assemble is necessary to recapture the beliefs of meaningful pluralism. The Constitution contemplated forcefully dissenting political and expressive groups that would serve as a check on the majority rule's tendency to turn to a force for stifling nonconformity. To maintain an environment in which these groups will flourish, Inazu contends, our First Amendment jurisprudence must recover a more robust conception of associational autonomy granted in a better understanding of the centrality and breadth of the assembly right. John Inazu, a professor at Washington University Law School, is joined by critical commenter Michael McConnell, the Richard and Francis Mallory Professor and Director of the Constitutional Law Center at Stanford Law School, as well as Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, to discuss the book. As always, the Federalist Society takes no position on particular legal or public policy issues. All expressions of opinion are those of the speakers. And now, Professor Nazu. Great. Well, thanks to the Federalist Society and Professor McConnell for participating in this podcast. I want to take a few minutes to provide an overview of Liberty's Refuge, which seeks to reclaim the significance of the right of assembly in American constitutional law. I had three objectives in writing this book, and I want to talk about one diagnostic, one historical, and one normative objective. The diagnosis was an attempt to explain the problems with the current doctrine of the right of association, which the court first recognized in 1958 and has since focused on to the detriment of assembly. The relatively recent appearance of the right of association is itself routinely overlooked, as evidenced by over 25 federal court opinions that refer to a non-existent freedom of association clause in the First Amendment. But I found even more troubling than the sudden appearance of an under-theorized right of association in 1958 the important and dangerous doctrinal shift 26 years later in a case called Roberts against United States JCs. The JCs case suggested that groups or associations fall into three categories for constitutional purposes. The first category is intimate associations, small and selective groups that the court described as fundamental and intrinsic to personal liberty. These groups receive the highest level of constitutional protections. The second group are expressive associations, and the court describes these as groups that are instrumental to furthering some other First Amendment activity, like speech, press, or religion. These groups receive a kind of heightened scrutiny, although the the court has not exactly been clear about what that means. And then finally, non-expressive associations, groups that are neither expressive nor intimate, receive the lowest level of constitutional protection, and regulations against them are subject only to rational basis scrutiny. The upshot of this framework, as the court has shown in the past 30 years, is that intimate associations are almost always protected, but almost no groups fall into that category. 
expressive associations are sometimes protected, but generally not when it comes to anti-discrimination law, and non-expressive associations are generally unprotected. I suggest in Liberty's Refuge that the Supreme Court has failed to provide meaningful or principled reasons for making these constitutionally significant distinctions. In fact, a lot of groups that sound like good candidates for First Amendment protection end up unprotected. One example is the Christian Legal Society, the subject of the court's 2010 decision in Christian Legal Society against Martinez, a decision in which the court skirted the associational analysis altogether. In that case, the court upheld the policy of a public law school to exclude a private Christian group from its form of student organizations. Justice Ginsburg's opinion for the five-member majority concluded that the Christian group's right of association claim merged with its free speech claim. In other words, the court found no independent value in association apart from speech. Martinez, I think, also illustrates the logical reach of an unrestricted anti-discrimination norm. As the Ninth Circuit opinion in a different case suggested, relying on Martinez, a public university might be able to exclude Christian student groups because, and here to quote from the opinion, their members and officers profess a specific religious belief, namely Christianity. The diagnostic argument in Liberty's Refuge suggests that this is a problem. The book then asks what we might do about this problem, and the alternative that I propose is found in the right of assembly. The historical argument, which forms the bulk of the book's second and third chapters, excavates the prominent role that the right of assembly has occupied in our constitutional and popular past, beginning with the not insignificant fact that it actually shows up in the text of the First Amendment. The First Amendment protects the right of the people peaceably to assemble, comma, and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. This comma turns out to be important for several reasons, one of which is that it alerts us to predicate versions of the assembly and petition clauses, and there were two, which offer one explanation for the grammar of the final wording of the clause. A second reason that counsels against construing the right of assembly as limited to the purposes of petition is that the debates in the first Congress over whether even to include an assembly clause in the Bill of Rights contained a pointed reference to the trial of William Penn, Penn had been arrested and tried in London for unlawful assembly following his preaching on the streets. It was an act of religious worship that had been nothing to do with the petitioning the government. This broader understanding of assembly is echoed in rhetorical and legal claims advanced by numerous social movements, including the Democratic Republican Societies, Free Enslaved Blacks in the Antebellum South, suffragists organizations, labor unions, and civil rights groups. And we see this spread across a variety of activities, not only political, but also religious and social activities. We have forgotten the significance of assembly that past generations recognized, and the normative theory of Liberty's Refuge suggests that we have lost something valuable in this forgetting. Our own history counsels that we ought to protect dissenting private groups, even at the cost of stability and uniformity. Toward the end of the book, I propose a test that affords a presumptive right of individuals to form and participate in peaceable, non-commercial groups. That test offers two constraints. The first, peaceability, comes from the text of the Assembly Clause. It asks us to confront important and challenging questions for the boundaries of groups. These boundaries questions are not easy, as we know from our free speech doctrine, but we do have some guidance. We ought to recognize the peaceability of private groups unless and until they pose a threat of imminent violence. The commercial and non-commercial boundary is a more theoretically difficult one, and one that Professor McConnell and others have adopted in litigating cases like Martinez in Boy Scouts Against Dale. I believe that this line forces us to think more honestly than expressive or non-expressive association about the boundaries of civil society. We have, 
I think, in our history and even today, an intuitive understanding of voluntary associations ranging from Tocqueville to Robert Putnam, and we see this kind of space as somehow different than government and business. The diagnostic, historical, and normative arguments in Liberty's Refuge are interrelated. The normative claim is strengthened by the weight of history and the weaknesses of the current doctrine. But even if I'm right on the history and doctrine, the normative argument must still attract some salience in order to be plausible under the kind of constitutional reasoning that underlies today's First Amendment jurisprudence. This is perhaps the most important goal of Liberty's Refuge, to offer a plausible argument for honoring a genuine pluralism that extends to unpopular as well as popular groups and guards against state-enforced orthodoxy. So this is Michael McConnell speaking. I'm very happy to be on this podcast because I think John Inazu has written a stimulating and important book. I think about this book and the subject both from my perspective in teaching First Amendment law and also because I was involved in litigating two of the major freedom of association cases that John discusses in the book, CLS versus Martinez, in which I represented the losing party, the Christian Legal Society, and Boy Scouts of America versus Dale, in which I represented the prevailing party, both of these being five to four decisions. Now, the thing about being a constitutional law professor involved in litigation is that the litigation really helps you to think through some of the theoretical problems in the way in which legal doctrine has been constructed. And Indeed, these cases presented all kinds of puzzles, and John's book, I think, helps to explain the ultimate sort of textual and historical box that the Supreme Court had painted itself in, and thus helps to explain why the doctrine was as puzzling and unsatisfactory as it turned out to be. The underlying question, sort of broad question for constitutional theory, is how closely the Supreme Court's doctrine is going to match the actual words, the text, of the Constitution. And that may seem like an odd perspective, but it turns out if you look at the court's cases, especially in the period between World War II and, say, the advent of the Rehnquist Court, the court very frequently decided cases by reference to doctrines that are not in the Constitution and with very little attention to the actual words that are there. So we have such things as the privacy doctrine or this uh, freedom of association clause, which, as John points out, is not actually in the Constitution. And yet other things that are there, the right to keep and bear arms, for example, or the right of assembly, pretty much dropped out, and the court simply stopped referring to freedom of assembly. This is particularly ironic because back in the first Congress when the Bill of Rights was being developed, one of the very few objections to the First Amendment as it was being considered was that the various parts of it were redundant. And specifically, Theodore Sedgwick of Massachusetts argued that the right of assembly was merely redundant of the right of freedom of speech. He said that if we have a right to speak, well, of course, we must have a right to gather together in groups to speak to one another leading a defender of the clause to invoke the famous example of William Penn's prosecution for unlawful assembly. The important thing here, I think, is that the framers of the First Amendment were more perceptive about the differences in the various First Amendment rights than we often are today, that they separately protected speech, press, petition, assembly, and religion, and they did so for a reason. Today, there's a tendency for the court 
simply to glom all of those freedoms together and call them something like a right of freedom of expression or something of the sort, rather than thinking about the ways each of those rights independently protect our freedoms. And so John's book is about freedom of assembly, and we must ask, and he answers, what is it about the freedom of assembly which is somewhat different from and adds to the concepts of speech, press, or petition? And I think that there are two principal ways in which freedom of assembly supplements mere freedom of speech. The first is that assemblies are about the formation of a group. That is, not just the moment in time when someone is standing in front of a group and orating, but the process of gathering, the selection of a subject, the leadership of the group, that the freedom of speech is fundamentally about the content of what is being said. Freedom of assembly is at least in part about the institution or the group that's the seedbed for the speech. Thus, in the first big historical dispute about freedom of assembly, which occurred during the Washington administration, and this is something that John recounts very well in his book, the Federalists objected to the formation of what were called the Democratic-Republican societies, which were these groups of political opponents of the administration. And President Washington said something to the effect of that it's fine for people to get together from time to time to object to the measures of government, but when you have a self-selected society that exists on a continuous basis, that this is a problem. Well, Madison opposed Washington on that point, and Madison was almost certainly correct, and he was supported by the House of Representatives at the time, that freedom of assembly is not just about casual from time to time meetings, but it is actually about self-selected societies, which means societies who determine for themselves who their membership and leadership is going to be. And that is essential for there to be an effective freedom of assembly. That's why we have things like the Million Man March, organized by one particular group, or Glenn Beck's March on Washington, or any other particular group, a labor union, a social club, the Tea Party, Occupy, whatever it happens to be. If these groups do not exist independently of the moment of the speaking, then there are not going to be any assemblies and not going to be a proper freedom of assembly. So that's one way in which freedom of assembly is different from speech, is that it focuses upon the freedom of to form a group, a self-selected, self-governing group that decides for itself what it is going to be assembling about. And the second thing that I think that the right of assembly emphasizes beyond mere speech is the place. And John's book has less in it about this point, but to have an assembly, you have to be somewhere. And in the late 18th century, when this was, clause was written, that generally meant to appear in the public park, the commons, the streets, the wharves, also some private spaces, the coffee houses and pubs were important places of assembly. But for large-scale assemblies, people met out, for example, on the Boston Common. You think of the occasion of the uh, rallying of the Sons of Liberty or of the Boston Massacre. These meetings were on public soil. Well, today we have a lot of cases about when people have a right to meet on public property, but they are envisioned as freedom of speech cases only, and the protection that is given to them 
is directed almost only to when the government is discriminating on the basis of viewpoint. This is very different, I think, than the original conception of the right of assembly, in which people, if they were going to be peaceable, people had a right to meet on government property without regard to the reasons the government might have for interfering with that. And so freedom of assembly helps explain and would strengthen the modern doctrine of public forums in which people have a right to speak on government property. That I think that would include such things as speaking within a, uh, empty spaces in a public university or a public law school, which is why it was so disturbing for the Supreme Court to hold that Hastings College of the Law had a right to keep Christian students from meeting on campus just because those students insisted that they be a self-selected group, that they be able to choose leaders who actually shared their own religious convictions. If the British had enforced rules like Hastings College of the Law and the Sons of Liberty back in the 1770s, we might never have had an American Revolution. Michael, thanks especially for the focus on public spaces, which, and I think you're right that I, I did not detail that as well in the book. Tim Zick's book, Speech Out of Doors, addresses some of those issues. And, and I think one of the immediate areas of pushback that I often get is the line that where people say, well, public spaces or public subsidies, this is a different issue. This is not merely just letting a group be, but you're asking the government affirmatively to support it. And I've never thought that right in that the government, when it opens a public space for the purposes of debate or many ideas, is explicitly not adopting one position over another. And so I do think there's room and traction in the First Amendment and in the right of assembly specifically to push back on this narrowing or closing of the public forum. And I wonder if you if you see a possibility for that going forward. When people say that opening property owned by the government to members of the public is a subsidy to them, They are speaking in language which our founders would not have recognized. Places like the streets and the wharves and the commons, Boston Commons or other such places, were not viewed as owned by the government. They were owned by the public. The government is simply the trustee in the name of the public. It is not a subsidy to a private group to allow them, as part of the public, to exercise their rights as members of the public to use the public space. Now, if the public space has been affirmatively dedicated to something else inconsistent with assembly, well, that's a different matter. I mean, you can't have an assembly in the middle of the opera hall during a performance of Aida, and you can't have an assembly in a military base that would interfere with the military discipline on that base. But when it comes to places that are used and are appropriate for public speech, it is not a subsidy to the group for them to exercise their rights as members of the public. As the public, they own those public spaces, and the government is only a trustee. It seems to me that in our modern technological era, there are even more public spaces than there were before because we have ways in which we can now convene and assemble that don't actually involve land, that can involve use of the airwaves or the Internet or other sources such as that. But the fundamental point, I think, is that freedom of assembly recognizes that one of the rights of the people is to be able to get together and speak on subjects of their own choosing on government property, or I should say on public property. And one of the boundary lines that I've 
wrestled with and tried to address in the book is how far the right of the people extends to the people in relation to other people as this goes to the line between commercial and non-commercial associations. So the public streets and the public fora should be open to groups of all kinds, but most of us embrace the idea that the restaurant attached to that public street should serve all customers and and these sorts of things. And yet, on the other hand, turning to this idea of non-commercial groups or voluntary associations or something other than the restaurant or the business or the Boeing company. And this is an idea that almost makes intuitive sense to me, but there are a lot of people who resist it or, or who don't like the idea of trying to draw that line. I wonder if you have thoughts about both the practicalities or the theory of the line between commercial and non-commercial? Well, it isn't an easy line because even a lot of non-commercial associations do hire people for their positions or buy or sell the services. The Boy Scouts, for example, were regarded in Dale as a non-commercial association, but if a boy goes to summer camp, he pays the fee to go to summer camp, and the Boy Scouts hire counselors and They buy food, and every organization has a certain commercial element to it. And so it may be a difficult line to draw, but I think that we have, looking again to our constitutional tradition, that there's an understanding that commercial relations are more subject to government regulation than non-commercial. That's why there's a commerce clause in the Constitution, and that it is legitimate for the government to ensure that everyone has non-discriminatory access to employment opportunities and business opportunities. That doesn't mean that they have a right to be in everybody's group. That doesn't mean that Methodists have a right to run Baptist organizations or that you can't have an all-male or all-female social club. That, I think, is on the other side of the line. One of the points you highlighted in your discussion was the importance of protecting the formation of the group before the moment of speech, and this is something that I tried to draw out in the book, the significance of the pre-political in order to get to the political. So I mentioned, for example, the Harlem Renaissance that started with dinner parties or potato sack races that were part of the women's suffrage movement, and these sorts of things, even dancing, that seem social or non-political or something that we might not intuitively protect, but without those kinds of relational group activities, we never get to the space in which ideas are formed and which speech proceeds from. And I wonder in this vein whether the doctrine, the current doctrine of expressive association is big enough to allow for these kinds of groups and activities. And my worry that I try to highlight in the book is that the way the court has construed expressive association is an instrumental right for the purposes of some other First Amendment right, which seems to suggest that unless we can identify explicitly some other First Amendment activity, then the expressive association right might not even factor in. And it's these very pre-political or social activities that might be left unprotected. And I wonder if that doesn't start to lead to the kind of logic expressed in the Martinez opinion that says association and speech merge, there are no differences. There's sort of a feedback mechanism in which one subsumes the other. Is there a way out of that within expressive association? Well, I think you put your finger on the problem, which is that if we only look at freedom of association as instrumental to the communication of a political message, then we're going to be losing a great deal of the protection. Indeed, it's just going to collapse into freedom of speech, which is exactly what the first Congress debated doing 
and rejected. I do wonder, though, exactly how far even you would go in the book, whether we're only talking about activities that are preparatory to more public political expression. What about, for example, there was a case, I believe it was a unanimous Supreme Court decision about 10 or 15 years ago, that there was no freedom of association for young people to meet at a skating rink. What about a freedom of association to skate together? What do you think of that? Right, right. I think that's a Dallas against Stanglin. That case is interesting to me because part of the court's analysis there is that this is a commercial enterprise. They're gathering for the purpose of paying money to do this activity. And so I would almost draw that line differently going back to this commercial distinction. But I think if you have a group of kids, a youth club or something, and they're getting together to skate because they all like to skate, I would want to be epistemically open to the possibility that there is a kind of formational activity that goes on there, that there are bonds that are forming, that there are ideas being discussed. And it it would be very difficult, I think, to construe that as political from the outside. But part of what I want to do is defer a little bit to what goes on on the inside. And I, and I, I get this instinct partly from religious groups and sororities and fraternities and these kinds of groups that an outside observer would just not know what's going on or not even see it as possibly coherent, let alone political, and yet there's something maybe thicker and richer going on that does lead to these kinds of political values. I would, even with the skating group, I'd want to be open to the possibility. Well, I even rebel against the idea that things have to be political or even preparatory to political to be important for human flourishing. It's easy for governmental types to think, well, you know, political discussion is the most important, but you know, a lot of human interaction has to do with having fun together, playing together, telling jokes, skating. Maybe skating is an important thing to do together because it promotes friendship, even if it has no political character to it at all. And it seems kind of odd to me that freedom of association has been confined to the more overtly political, even though at the same time the Supreme Court has broadened freedom of speech to the non-political. So we now have, according to the Supreme Court in the Schwarzenegger violent video games case, last year we have a free speech right. Young people have a free speech right to engage in extremely violent video games, but they don't have an association right to go to a skating rink together. It's really rather puzzling to me. I think there's another tension between the speech and association or assembly doctrine, which is in our free speech jurisprudence, we go out of the way to protect that which is unorthodox or or most troubling, or we hold our noses at certain views that are expressed. And yet with association, there seems to be a growing orthodoxy to the doctrine that wants to narrow the kinds of boundaries that are extended under this right. There's a tension there between those two areas of our First Amendment jurisprudence. There seems to be a real hostility today to the idea that groups can form themselves on something other than politically correct, liberal, uh, universalist values, and I find that troubling. Let me ask you this. We haven't talked about the peaceable line, and I haven't been able to think through this very well, but assemblies don't have protection unless they are peaceable, but what does that mean Aren't all assemblies peaceable right up until the point where the assembly breaks out into violence? Do we wait for the actual violence, or does the government have a right to prohibit what you know, British common law in the 18th century used to call riotous assemblies, which are 
assemblies which you know, reasonably look as though they're going to lead to violence. Right. I think this is a really important and fairly under-theorized question, and I think the recent decision in the Humanitarian Law Project case gives pause to this question and needs to be addressed more squarely by scholars and others. There's a problem in both speech and association doctrine related to the boundaries of either criminality or violence. We see it pervasively in the Red Scare era association cases. And I think it's a problem that's just going to be unavoidable both in constitutional law and in criminal law. So when we think of something like conspiracy law and the difficulties within criminal law of trying to figure out what exactly is punishable as a conspiracy and burdens of proof and and these sorts of things, I think those are going to exist. And her track record is often going in too early rather than waiting too late. And there are big costs at stake. I'm not sure that that particular line is going to be any more difficult to draw around the group or associational dimension than it is around the speech dimensions or the criminal dimensions. But I think it's an area that we need to give more attention to, particularly in light of the current concerns about terrorist activities or homespun activities. I'm glad you mentioned the Humanitarian Law Project case, because I think it may have come down after your book was drafted. Is that right? I mentioned it briefly in the introduction. But it does raise, you know, very interesting questions about peaceable form and perfectly lawful forms of support for organizations that are on the terrorist list. And the Supreme Court did not extend freedom of association or assembly protection to those, but difficult, difficult case. Another point that you mentioned that triggered a thought here is the importance of the non-political aspects of First Amendment activities. And so you mentioned friendship or, or those kinds of flourishing. And I think that's right. And I think that's what the court was trying to latch onto with this idea of intimate association. The problem, I think, is the necessary line drawing that comes with it. So we now have a doctrine where intimate association is explicitly recognized for the ways that it protects flourishing and liberty and these other kinds of First Amendment values that most people care about and intuitively recognize. But then the category is limited very precisely and narrowly, mostly to the family and a couple other very narrow exceptions. And so that category does very little work doctrinally And yet those are the kinds of values that lots of groups, lots of these voluntary associations push toward and allow and foster, and and also the groups that are nascently formed that we don't necessarily recognize as even doing these sorts of things. And so early on, when the idea of intimate association is being theorized by Ken Karst, he recognizes if this category is going to do any work or protect these kinds of values, it has to extend to the informal and the casual, as well as the committed and the explicit forms of relationship. And so I wonder if there's a way to reach back or reclaim this notion of intimacy within a kind of flourishing or relationality that extends not just to groups of two or three, but really to the kinds of groups that many of us participate in at a larger level. I'm inclined to think that the doctrine of intimate association is dead, that it was created You can probably tell me how many years ago, but 30, 40 years ago, as an alternative to substantive due process to protect things like the right of married couples to have contraception and later the abortion right and so forth. And it's interesting that today in litigation over same-sex marriage, at least to my knowledge, the intimate association as a First Amendment matter has been largely abandoned. 
favor of some form of substantive due process. I think part of the problem is we don't know what it is about intimate associations and what they do that's protected. With an assembly, we know what's protected. It's the gathering together to engage in some kind of speech. But with intimate associations, what is it that small groups of people have a right to do? And you know, what's the connection between that and the First Amendment? It's tricky, though, because I think in the really, or at least the notion of assembly that I'm driving toward is somewhere in the middle of those two descriptions that you just gave. So it, Because it's not really just the gathering to participate in speech, but it's, it's all the things that we've been talking about. It could be skating, for example. And so mm-hmm. there's something much broader in the groupness. And I, I think you're right on intimate association as a doctrinal matter that the issue was briefed to the court in Lawrence and the majority ignores it in favor of a substantive due process argument. But there are values and language tied to that idea that, and this is what's interesting to me, that scholars across sort of ideological perspectives are clinging to and highlighting something important. And it's that maybe the middle ground of what we were just talking about that seems to matter. And that's the area that seems largely unprotected right now. But isn't it true that intimate association has less of a connection to assembly than other forms of group activity do? I mean, when I think of the right of assembly in the 18th century, you know, I don't think of you know, two or three people you know, off in their private home somewhere. I mean, I think of it as being a fundamentally public event. I think that's right, but this is where I think the importance of the pre-political needs to be highlighted more and protected more, because we never get to the public event if we regulate the private spaces to such a degree that the public never forms. This is, I think, part of what the problem in the CLS case is. It's saying we're not even going to have a discussion about some of the issues in the public form of a university because the group as it wanted to be doesn't even get to form. This is certainly true, but the group that wanted to form wanted to form for the purpose of meeting publicly. What Hastings actually said to the CLS group is, you can meet in your own dorm room. That should be good enough. They didn't want to meet in their dorm room. They wanted to meet in the public space of public law school where they thought they had a right along with everyone else to do. And I think that nicely illustrates the continuum and also suggests why I think you and I both agree that Martinez is almost paradigmatic case of what ought to have been protected under assembly and also under the right of association but was not. I'm pushing toward, I think, a way to conceive of protecting groups that haven't yet even formed that particular or deliberate purpose. And so, and this is where actually the Occupy movement fascinates me in this regard, because part of what Occupy is doing, at least in the instances with which I'm familiar, is saying that we're not yet even a group, or we don't yet have a purpose, but we're here together trying to figure out what that might be. And that's really hard for me to get a handle on or grasp what that is. It's the sort of thing that both gives me pause and also makes me ask whether this is the kind of lack of clarity or ambiguity that we ought to be on guard for against state regulation that comes too quickly. Well, I have absolutely no doubt that Occupy is is an exercise of the freedom of assembly and fully entitled to all the protections of that. Uh, Sometimes Occupy wasn't peaceable, and sometimes Occupy was appropriating land that had other uses too. I mean, it's one thing to meet on Boston Commons. It's another to uh, 
effectively prevent anyone else from uh, meeting there uh, for significant periods of time. Uh, Occupy also had other you know, sanitation and other related issues, but at its heart, it seems to me that Occupy is a perfect example of a group that had every right of freedom of assembly. You know, I think one other question that I wanted to think about or throw out is there's a value, I think, to focusing on the relationships between people rather than simply individuality. I think assembly given to the people, but also a right that is inherently relational, that you don't assemble as a single individual, that it takes relationship or activity with others. And I wonder if there's something important in highlighting constitutionally and in political theory the significance of activity that happens outside of this individualist focus on rights and on what we are doing constitutionally today. Well, it certainly mattered back in the 18th century because freedom of assembly was one of the First Amendment rights, which was a departure from the British constitutional norm before. I mean, freedom of press was largely carrying forward uh, freedom we already had, at least since the late 17th century, and speech in large part as well. But in Britain, there were laws against unlawful assembly and the Riot Act and other laws. And the reason for this is that the government regarded it as dangerous for people to be able to meet together and express discontent. Well, I think that right is just as important now. And that's why I think your book is so timely, because what it does is it takes something which is extremely important today, but roots it in the language and history of the Constitution. And this is the best way I think uh, we have of analyzing and understanding uh, constitutional rights is to see the deep connections between text history and political theory. And that's why you know, I'm hoping that your book gets lots of attention and lots of readership. Well, thanks, Michael. I couldn't agree more with that. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this Faculty Book Podcast. For more podcasts, as well as audio and video of past Federalist Society events, please visit our website at www.federalistsociety.org forward slash multimedia.